This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3 Triple R's weekly other stuff show that occasionally talks about gardening. Bushy's my name, and as always, the co conspirator in the studio is the tech guru, the weed wizard, the man, the myth himself, Adam Grubb. Hey, Bushy. Hello. That intro was to counteract that it's been shown, it's been described as a gardening show that sometimes talks about other stuff. Other stuff, was yeah. <laughs> I've had a few people say that. Yeah. I've had people describe that to people standing next to me. Oh, he does this show, it's like a garden show, but they talk about some other stuff as well. And I, don't, I think we're another stuff show. How you be? I'd be good. Yeah, yeah how you doing? How are how you, how you pulling up after the weekend? M- big match? Disappointed, um, heartbroken, furious. Mm. Um, although the Saints bought it home Saturday night, so I'm going to focus more on the big corporate football from the weekend <laughs> rather than the um, help the community football. Oh, no, thanks, I'm not thanks for representing that. anyway, mate. No worries at all. No, it was good. I'd, it was probably one of the worst games of football I've personally... I felt like I was about three metres ahead or three metres behind the entire flow of the world all day. Like, I'd probably landed in a dimension slightly off-kilter to the rest of it. <laughs> Just felt Was shit. the foot making contact with the ball? <laughs> Not well. <laughs> Joining us in the studio again, the totally lovely yet Brexitly angry Kate <gasps> Dundas. Yes, hello. Is Brexitly angry, is that a, a correct? Brexitly angry would be correct, mm. yes. We're going to come to that in a little yes. bit. It's lovely to see you. And you. Despite, despite the rage, there's actually fire coming off your eyelashes. Uh, bicycle Whisperer, weekly <laughs> panellist and all-round fabulous person, Jed McCartney, is running the show tonight. How are you, Cobber? I'm well, thanks. That football problem you got? Yeah. Old age. Old uh, Yeah, come on. I'm not even 40 yet. I have the... Really? Knee- nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just... Oh, I'm not having a good run. Uh, tonight we will be talking ethical farming, regenerative agriculture and food regulations with Tammy Jonas, who, along with her partner Stuart and their family, runs Jonai Farm in central Victoria as both a production farm and educational outlet. And we'll be chatting with her shortly. What's caught our eye this week, kids? Kate, do you want to go first? Do you want me to start? Yeah, you can well, start. Brexit has caught my eye. Now, for anyone who hasn't Probably heard about <laughs> a little bit too late because... I thought Brexit was going to be a time-wasting joke. Me thing. too. It was just like, oh, Cameron, whatever, Brexit, blah, blah, blah. And my mum was phoning me going, I'm really worried about Brexit. And I was like, don't worry, mum, it's stupid. There's no way we're going to vote to leave. And then, oh, my God. Yeah. What the actual... Puck. Puck. <laughs> I can't believe it. I cannot believe that the UK, not Scotland, that... 
but we're getting dragged along. Has this is called to... the southeast corner. No, it's not the southeast no. corner. It's the rest of England. Taken, ah. Take the greater London area, Scotland and Northern behaved? Ireland out oh, of right. it. And everybody else, the majority of whom receive a lot of European money mm. to do a lot of different really quite good projects... I've decided to leave. All it, the old people, they're all, what, Jed? It's great for Scotland, though. How this is it great for Scotland? This is your chance to ditch the POM. Oh, my God. Secede, so instead separate, of having one part love, of the Euro, start speaking French. Well, that's what's going to happen. So we're going we're gonna to leave. Scotland, quite frankly, shouldn't have been with England. <laughs> anyway, because Scotland's very different to England. We have very different ideas about how we should. We're very much more socialist. And to be ruled by a Tory government, I completely disagree with anyway. And now, bloody Brexit! Mm. Ah! And what it's made me realise even more is, you know, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about um, how that Google magician guy was controlling our minds with our phones. Yeah. So now I've realised how much of a third-party influence... Google and Facebook has on me because my Facebook feed was all like, oh, stupid Brexit, nobody's going to vote for that. Ridiculous. And, you know, I read The Guardian and I read what other people post on Facebook and I really tailor my media intake to what my friends think, I've realised. And which is not what everyone else thinks, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so there's. you should probably tune into Fox News. Um, the Tea Party and the Republican newsletters, a few yeah. of those things, well, and the the New Dawn. My dad, just to make a point of, like, whatever, reads every single thing possible, so he doesn't really do his work. He just gets all the different <laughs> papers, like Al Jazeera, the Daily Mail, the Guardian, and he reads absolutely everything to get a decent point of view about what's going on. Whereas I completely don't. I just get, like, fed stuff that Facebook gives me, which is why I was completely surprised that... Brexit was an actual thing. I can't believe it. Mm. And now bloody Boris Johnson and Farage. Come on. Oh, it's terrifying. At least Nicola Sturgeon's on the game. But She's the, like, mm, come on, the Nicola. The point to consider there, and this was this one little thing I read the other day, was that Cameron has basically served a checkmate to Boris Johnson for him to actually enact the Brexit. Yeah. It's an impossibly pro- massive task. Well, that's the problem. It's all been like Tory... Tory games. Mm. Uh, it was supposed to be internal politics played out and then Cameron would be like, see you later, Boris. See you mm. later, bloody Michael Gove. But what's actually happened is, surprisingly, Boris, Gove and Flipping Farage have actually won. And now they're like, oh crap, we didn't expect that. Mm. Uh, Scotland is going to now go for a second referendum, probably leave. Northern Ireland, all of that very carefully worked out piece that's sitting on a knife edge. Now what happens? Mm. Oh. Christ. No, but oh, look, I'm with you because I, when I first heard about it, I had that same thing. Of, pff, it won't happen. It just as if. Yeah. I, because it, both so many of these things, um, like with the Greek austerity measures, it sort of went, yay. Oh, no, but that's not. And so I, I didn't pay a hell of a lot of attention to it. No, I just sort of one I. of those sort of flash in the pan things. <laughs> but now I'm having to backtrack and kind of go, oh, shh. Yeah. What's actually happened? But it, it just seems too much of a monumental task to actually follow through on. You know what I mean? Just... Yeah, but now Europe's like, see you later, just get out. Yeah. You can't just use this as some negotiating tool to get what you want. Yeah. Well, that's ultimately what it is, isn't it? That's <laughs> not gardening. We just talked about not gardening. We, that, that was other, <laughs> other stuff. stuff. <laughs> Indeed. I can bring it back home. Yeah, do it. Sort of. 
What caught my eye this week was an article. It's an old one from the BBC from last year, but I hadn't come across it before. It's called, Do We Understand the Power of Plants and Trees? What it's really getting at, it's about plant intelligence. And they interview several people, including Professor Stefano Stefano Mancuso from the International Laboratory of Plant Neurobiology for Plants. I didn't even know that was a position. um, At the University of Florence. And he says that uh, his department are convinced that plants are both cognitive and intelligence. And so they use a lot of the same methods that you would normally use to study animal intelligence. Only they do it with the time-lapse photography because plants, they say, might be smart, but it takes a lot. You've got to slow it down to figure out what's going on. And Is it like when they do that test with the sheep and they give them a picture of someone they know and someone they don't know and then the sheep have to go to the person they know? Ah, I haven't heard that one. But Did they yeah. do that with the plants? Well, not... Well, <laughs> Almost. Well, there there are a lot of there there are some things parallel to that where like I think it's Douglas fir trees for instance can tell which ones are their own offspring and they can communicate through what's known as the kind of worldwide web of the the roots which is like a connection of fungal strands that connect the trees together and they can send resources to their friends and family. <gasps> yeah. Uh, but there was some other cool stuff. There was an experiment with two climbing bean plants. And this is staggering. This Read this. This is amazing. Yeah. And if, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, we're building the tension there, Bushy. Uh, <laughs> the, what Bushy is excited about is that if you put a single support between two bean plants, they ha- they're going to compete for it. And what's interesting is that the loser of the two... can has been. There <laughs> never was been. Um, it, it, it can immediately sense that the other plant has reached the pole and starts to try and find an alternative. And they don't... They're astonished by this. They don't actually know how plants do it. Why don't they just share the pole? Oh, well... They, it, it will, they're trying to find ways to not compete, I guess. So it's trying to go, is there an alternative to look out for? And what they do say is that plants, unlike, unlike us, where we have our neurons and our electrical signals that are firing from within cells, that all happens within our brains and a few in our stomachs and things. But with plants, all their cells are like thinking cells. They say... Um, The plant is kind of like a distributed brain in which almost every cell is able to produce electrical signals. And they are much more sensitive than animals. Every root apex can detect 20 different physical and chemical parameters, light, gravity, magnetic field, pathogens, and so on. So I don't know what that means for our discussion tonight, which is going to involve... Maybe people will become angry, more angry about us eating plants. Yeah. (laughs) I actually once saw a T-shirt that said, I didn't choose to be a vegetarian because I love animals. I did it because I hate plants. <laughs> so, I don't know. That's pre- I've just been ripping through that article as you read about it, Adam, and it's quite incredible. There's a heap of studies with that, like with um, plants when they're exposed to fire or flame or something and, and um, little electron receptors and things I can't even explain because I don't have the tongue for it. But, um, yeah... <laughs> Mine's compared to the Brexit and plant intelligence. I'm just sort of continuing on with my recent fascination with waste streams, um, and this comes from Stephen Keane, who we interviewed the other week. He was talking in his chat with us that um, most economists don't factor waste into their thinking and their modelling at all. 
So my article that I uh, was having a look at called Six Things You Can Do With... Uh, what's it called? Six Things You Can Do With Coffee After You Finish Drinking It touches on a little bit of stuff. I mean, I was going to say here quickly as well, a lot of the people we speak with on the show talk about lots of um, different industries, homes, community groups who are actually utilising waste streams as assets and, and we're, talking about, we're talking about people who take food rejected from the shops to feed people. We've had the compost dunny discussion with Andy Tannehill, uh, regenerative farmers such as Salzden and, and Tammy tonight, a lot of people who let nothing leave the site and, and feed it back into their systems in the soil and so it, um, it basically redefines something that the average panel it sees as waste and to be discarded and turns it into an asset. So it's a mindset thing. But this article had some interesting stuff in it because I, I collect lots of coffee from shops and I put it through my three big worm farms or four big worm farm systems and my compost piles and I return it to the soil and I've used it for um, different little gardening things before. But this talks about um, using it for fuel. Uh, there is a business set up in England at the moment called BioBean and they are saving... My God, 200,000 tonnes in London and southeast England alone and turning into biomass pallets for power generation, um, as well as residential heating using these little burners. So these, they burn the beans more clean. The bur- beans burn more cleanly and contain 50% more energy than traditional wood. Um, and it's sort of based on a model that Nestle... I didn't realise that this. Nestle is not a name I usually say with an uplifting inflection, but they have been using waste coffee grounds from their instant-soluble coffee produ- uh, production as thermal fuel, and they are currently displacing 800,000 tonnes of coffee grounds each year that would have otherwise gone into landfill and using it to fuel their production. So that only slightly makes up for some of the other things they've done over the years, but... Um, <laughs> So this kind of, well, the one thing that really stuck out to me about this, there's a bunch of stuff that this article goes on to talk about, so re- re- retrieving valuable chemicals from the coffee, composting it, using coffee to soak up heavy metals, um, and a bunch of other things. But it, I'm fascinated by the idea of turning it into a fuel because I'm always interested to know, does the industrial process involve to turn coffee grounds into burning pallets? demand more energy than it gives back and i think that's always a question worth asking so if you're burning if, if the result of burning the coffee to fuel people's barbecues or homes or whatever um actually costs more at the front end than what it gives back then it is not having any kind of positive effect i've, I've got to say a couple of things in this article it, it reminds me a little bit of a time i was at a mate's place and they had a toothbrush which said it was made from recycled yogurt containers and it's just there is i i I think what you're doing is great putting it through the worm farms but thinking Mm. that we can take our coffee and turn it into biodiesel it has a slight portlandia kind of yeah it's too good to be true like it's yeah it's very portlandia i'm a i'm suspicious i automatically go to that thing as well and i've written here as a note does burning coffee result in anybody who breathes in the smoke finding themselves suddenly very motivated and excitable and creative (laughs) and then i've written in brackets because there's already a thing that you can burn that can do that for you (laughs) anyway um i'm just a bit interested in this stuff at the moment that something really resonated with stephen Keane the other day and he was talking about economist and economic thinking that doesn't consider waste uh there's another is it just a way to kind of explain away your lazy bad behavior Anyway, my lazy like bad behaviour, personally, or, or mine, just, everyone's. Oh, everyone. Just oh, you know, we can use the waste. We can burn it. Energy. Burn. <laughs> well, like in uh, there's a company that's doing. They're they're 
mission statement is to replace polystyrene with that mycelium-based packaging. Now, they get um, agricultural waste, like plant husk and everything, and they inoculate it with mycelium that goes into a mould, fills that cavity in the mould, and then is suspended in time and becomes a very strong, durable packaging that can be dumped in the backyard and disappear in 90 days back into the ground. So that's a great alternative. I mean, that, but again, I mean, all of these things, I mean, do we need packaging? Do we need so much mm. effing packaging? Yeah. Why can you, you know? not just take something that you own and fill it up and wash it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, to deliver, I get the idea that if you want to deliver wine bottles you know, across the country, they've got to be protected. But then I kind of go, well, why do you have to deliver wine bottles across the country? There's really good wine nearby all the time. There's heaps of wine, you know, and you can make your own. Mm-hmm. Might not be all that good, but anyway. Um, we should move on with the show. So Brexit, um, plant intelligence, and setting fire to coffee grounds to warm up. Full diverse. Yeah. Full diverse. Not a lot of gardening in there. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R FM. And tonight in the studio, we're very lucky to have in the flesh Tammy Jonas uh, from Eganstown, where she runs Jonai Farms, which I think Jonai is the plural of Jonas, rather much less wordy than Jonas's, uh, where she and the family raise pastured rare breed pigs. And she's also something of an agrarian intellectual who writes talks and actively organises towards a more regenerative and ethical food system, part of which involves her being the current president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. So welcome very much to Greening the Apocalypse, Tammy. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And it hasn't been long since uh, you were recently at the Gold Coast attending the Pork Industry Expo, the Pan Pacific Pork Expo. Do you want to tell us what the typical kind of operation looks and maybe smells like for the attendees at that conference? Yeah, so that's the industry um, sort of peak conference that they have every two years and most of the farmers there are intensive pig farmers so Mm -hmm. they they raise their pigs in sheds. Um, The sheds are actually modernising, I suppose you could say, so the air quality in some of those are getting better but Mm -hmm. certainly the problem with raising any animals intensively in sheds is that they're in ammonia-filled air. They might suffer from pneumonia or pleurisy even as a regular ailment. Um, Mm -hmm. They're living... know essentially in their own excrement at all times and um, we personally think it's a fairly unconscionable system Uh, but all the people who were at this expo or most of them that's how they raise their animals all the time because that's the norm for raising pigs and poultry in this country and most others i think 95 percent of pork production in australia is in sheds like those Mm. uh, so there there has been an ongoing discourse uh, between people for for decades, some who choose to eat and use meat and animal products, those who don't. And if one argument for avoiding animal products is the ethics behind it and um, how the animals are raised and treated, are we able to define, firstly from an Australian stance perspective, what um, ethical farming means? But if not that, then what ethical farming means at Jonai Farm? I don't think there's any definition of ethical farming. I think that everybody has, you know, that sort of spectrum of ethics and where you sit on it will vary depending on what you know about farming, um, what you know about animals, what you know about air quality, what you know about pathogen spreading, um, what you know about how animals respond to pain or um, other negative stimulus. Um, So 
a vegan, of course, for a vegan abolitionist especially, would say that what we do is not ethical. Mm. Um, what we we think that people who raise animals in intensive systems are behaving unethically, although I wouldn't go so far as to say at the core they're an unethical mm. human subject. Um, and so for us, what ethical farming looks like is to give what our sort of farming hero and good friend Joel Salatin from America calls the pigness of the pig, respecting the pigness of the pig. Mm. They should be able to live their lives um, uninterfered with it to the most that you can in such mm. a system and at the end have just one bad day and ideally they wouldn't know it was coming at all mm. in a system like ours where you have to take them to abattoirs off-site there's i don't know if they know that death is coming but mm. they certainly know that they're in a in a vehicle and that's probably not where they'd rather be on that last yeah. day mm. tammy what is the pigness of a pig <laughs> well, for me, I mean, you know, we spend a lot of time with pigs. And so the um, the pigness of the pig is that they're able to move about freely. They're able to uh, root in the soil. That's a very natural behavior for pigs is to dig and dig, especially when, especially when the... Um, uh, I talk with my hands a lot, sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> nobody else can see that but all of you. Um, yeah, they, they like to dig with their noses. They're looking for roots and insects and all kinds of things to eat. Um, if they can't, one of the things they do in systems outdoors is try to put rings in their noses to stop them doing the digging because it causes oh, is them that pain. what they're for? Yeah. That's what the rings are for. Oh. They don't have to do it in the sheds because there's nowhere to dig. Mm. Um, so the in in our, yeah the pigness of the pig would mean they can they can run around they can root they can wallow. Um, so in summer they can't sweat. Uh, so that's why you provide wallows, wet spaces for them to get themselves cooled down. Um, and they should have access to that. They also really obviously enjoy that activity. You can, I, I don't care what any scientist tells you, mm. you can see that a pig is enjoying himself when he's in, when he's in a wallow. Oh. Um, and they should have access. happy as a pig in shit. Yeah. Well, they don't like being in shit. They well, like being shit. in mud. As happy as a pig yeah. in mud. Yeah. Um, they're actually very clean. They stay yeah. away from their, own, uh, from their own effluent. I have friends yeah. who keep them, and, and they, they actually got some pigs. Uh, the plan was they had this area, like these rotational areas, and they wanted the pigs to rut it over and poo everywhere to fertilize and they just all shit in one spot. That's right. And they kind of went, oh, that's... Mm, there's a bit more physical for us than we'd imagined. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, you were talking and I, I got quite distracted by the pig and shit. The pigs, <laughs> to my understanding, are also traditionally from the forests of Europe. You facilitate that somewhat with the, the silver culture, with orchard placement or tree tree habitat for them to to be amongst? Yeah, I think the best systems do have them in silvicultures. We don't very much because our property has mostly open paddocks yep. and so we've been madly planting trees both for, for shade and for more areas for sort of rooting about mm. and for um, the, the nuts and the fruit that will become perennial fodder for the animals. Um, but trees, as you know, take a very long time to grow yep. and so... Um, yeah, we're working on that. We'll be actually going to Spain in September and seeing some of the best examples of that, the Dehesa systems mm. in the southwest of Spain, where yeah. they're mostly in forests. And Joel runs his, in America, runs his pigs largely in the forest as well. It's great protection for them yep. as well as the kind of right environment. Well, I'll get, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, if they're able to express their pigness, then part of that uh, would have a sense that they're safe from predators. So in a forest, I suppose, they would feel hidden and able to evade that instinct or yeah i guess maybe they don't have a lot of predators i mean if you've hung out with a lot of 400 kilo pigs you'd know that they're yeah, true. fairly <laughs> fearsome in their yeah, own right they're really thinking, big yeah, they are big <laughs> yeah you'd have to have a, maybe a grizzly bear yeah uh, a, a lot of time when you're we're buying well any kind of farm product there's going to be an artist's interpretation of what the farm looks like 
which is very different to the kind of feed or the, the industrial farming model that you described. And I read the, uh, a quote from your friend and, and uh, inspiration, Joel Salatin, uh, that he has a goal for an aesthetically and aromatically sensually, sensually romantic farm. How, how are you getting... Is your place getting towards that? Could it, does it look like the kind of thing you could paint on the side of a packet? <laughs> oh, man. I think Kate could probably answer that a bit. Anybody who's seen my Facebook page knows that it's definitely that. And when you walk amongst it to get the um, aromatic side of it as well, mm. our farm doesn't smell because it's a healthy ecosystem mm. and they're healthy animals. So I think we're well and truly on that path. And, in fact, it's embedded in our... Um, uh, the value statement of the farm. It's it's one of the things we strive for as an aromatically and aesthetically pleasing farm. Mm. And it's very much that. I hate coming to the city, but I did it for you guys. Oh, you're oh, the best. Thanks, Tommy. Well, we might talk to you a little bit later about your journey from the city because that mm. is indeed where you come from. But it would be good to uh, talk a little bit first about the regenerative aspect of the farming. So you're trying to make the lives of the pigs more in tune with their pigness. Uh, are you also managing to regenerate the landscape in the process? That's certainly the ambition of the farm. Um, yeah. And I think that free-range pig farming in the last uh, 15 years really has done a great job of getting more pigs outdoors and treating them in a way that we think is more respectful of their lives mm. um, as pigs. Uh, the next part that our movement has to really focus on is regenerating soils while we're looking after pigs properly. It's hard. Um, that's one of the reasons I started moving them into sheds and confining them in, sh in smaller areas. Yeah. One of the motivations was the damage they can do to the land if they're not yeah. managed well. So rotating pigs regularly and then trying to inc include in that sort of forage cropping, fodder cropping and things so that you're actually... Um, returning other nutrients to the soil and extracting certain nutrients from the soil um, in, a, in a truly integrated system rather than just a monoculture of pigs. Mm -hmm. um, we also, as you know, run cattle on the property and we now have chickens for eggs and they are their ideas that they follow around like Joel's do, follow the paddocks, uh, follow the other animals on the paddocks and they eat from their poo and they eat any potential parasite loads so that you're not having to worm your animals. Um, we consider the chooks largely an ecological service on the farm. Mm. And then the because we have supply chain control by having built our boning room on the farm and doing all of our own butchering, we have we we um as per actually Bushy's point earlier, we produce what others would consider waste in the form of particularly bones. Mm -hmm. So by building a commercial kitchen, we can process all those bones into bone broth. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the bones go to the chickens who pick through, take off what's left of the meat. Then the bones get chipped and returned again. And the chickens dig them into the soil and return all this fertility back onto our own um, closed system. So we've moved from paddock to plate to paddock to paddock in the last few months and we're pretty excited about that. Mm. But we think this is a journey and we can always yeah. continue to and mm. planting lots of trees is yep. part of that philosophy as well to make a more regenerative system. Mm. Do, do the, I know with Joel's model um, he always talks about ruminants being followed by birds and that's mimicked in nature has been for millions and millions of years pretty much how grass came to evolve ruminants and birds. Um, do your chickens go out and follow the pigs around? Is that a different system because i mean the, the response to the land from a cow is very different to the response to the land to a pig which is digging and rutting and uprooting things do the chickens follow the pigs through they haven't yet not because we're particularly worried about it being a, a problem or, or any sort of issue it, we think it would be just as beneficial mm. the bigger issue is that because the pigs do turn the soil a lot those paddocks are much more uneven yep. and running a chook tractor uh, you know a caravan yeah. behind them is logistically a difficult thing to do <laughs> tricky <laughs> We need tundra tires on the caravan, yeah. basically. No worries. <laughs> well, do you want to tell us? So, 
it is early days, like you say, for you, right? How long, how long has the farm been? We're just uh, almost at five years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, we found a quote on your blog from 2010 where you said, and you'd just been to a Joel Salton talk, and obviously you were pretty pumped, and you're like, you made, it sounded like you made the decision then and there to get into farming. We did. And I, w- I, was, I was saying off air to you before, if I had have read it and not known what you'd gone on to achieve, I might have thought, oh, you poor fool. <laughs> Do you know what you're getting yourself into? Because you were a city academic, vegetarian. Correct. I wasn't a vegetarian that, in 2010, point, but, but I previously had been yeah, for many yeah. years. Uh, well, how, how's your, how are you tracking towards, you said in, in the blog post, I give us about five years to get through a startup period. Yeah, that's what we thought. Yeah. Um, that period is, I think we are still in a startup period, yeah. but we thought it would be about five years before we turned a profit from the farm and mm. could make it our full-time living. But that actually happened at two years, um, which was right when we built the burning room. So taking over the butchering turned mm. us from having to su- supplement the farm income to being able to make our entire living from the farm. And um, as I, I think I've said to you, making the farm also a platform for um, a voice for regenerative farming. We I always had that aspiration, especially as somebody who's written about food politics and food culture and food ethics for a long time. Mm. Never in our wildest dreams did we think that so quickly we would be able to become one of the very strong voices in the country fighting for change and and to see the community of other farmers growing so quickly. You know, like we are truly legion now. This country has got a really serious movement happening and it's very exciting to be part of it. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, free Triple R. Triple R is where you are, and Greening the Apocalypse is the show, and in the studio tonight we have agrarian intellectual farmer, and current president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, Tammy Jonas. Tammy, we were talking before the break about uh, the movement of small farmers, and I know you yourself have been one of the more vocal proponents of getting legislation changed or deregulation happening, perhaps, I'm not sure, but things to make it easier for small ethical farmers to do what they need to do. I I can't remember the full story, but I'm sure I've read about a particular incident that affected you personally involving your home, Salami. Do you want to tell us about that as an intro? Yeah, so we run salami workshops uh, every winter. It's a you know time-honoured tradition all across Italy and lots of parts of Europe. And two years ago, actually, after one of our salami workshops, the um, regulator, PrimeSafe, the meat regulator, rolled up our driveway. And actually, it was the night before we were flying to France for more research about salamis and saucisson. And they said, we understand you're going to France tomorrow. <laughs> oh, social media really does work, doesn't it? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, they were there to destroy our salamis, basically. They found out that we were running the workshops. I mean, it's all over the internet, so it's not hard to find out. Mm. Um, They actually asked if they could take photos of the salamis, and I, not realizing the grave danger we were in, said, of course you can. It's our cover photo for Facebook. Like, feel free. Come and take all the photos you want. Mm. Um, We had made the mistake that time of letting some people leave the property with salamis that they'd made on the day. So they were essentially Mm. salty, fresh sausages. But the point is they were meat that had been processed out side of our licensed facility mm-hmm. because we do this in a open ed, open-sided salami shed mm-hmm. and um, that's actually a breach of the act we learned that day. So 
um, in retribution for us doing that. Although we offered to recall the salamis that some people had taken away. Mm. They told us that that would go in our favor that we offered, but there was no need to do that. But they were going to destroy all of our personal salamis that were hanging there in our shed. They were not for sale. Mm. Um, they were ours. Yeah. And they made me take them all down and they poured poison on them. Oh. Even though those ones themselves weren't illegal. They were not actually illegal. Because no. they were for personal consumption. Correct. So how could they do that? They actually have authorities that would make um, you know certain periods of history look pretty easygoing. Um, I am not, I don't think they should have the sort of authority that they do. They have the authority to be judge and jury and um, to lay down the sentence and execute it on the spot, which you don't really have in any other area of law. It's quite unusual. Food safety sp- as a space sometimes has more draconian laws because of concerns for public health. Mm. Um, so they give them more powers a lot of the time. We think it's an overreach, though, in terms of the meat regulators uh, authority. We're not arguing though for deregulation. We'd okay. like to see scale appropriate regulation. Yep. Um, we'd also like them to stop destroying perfectly good food in a world where people are hungry and where animals have been raised so carefully and, and mindfully and taken only for food and to then take a perfectly healthy product and destroy it we think is absolutely not acceptable. Hmm. What, what are some of the other issues that arise for small farmers? Well, obviously one that's been in the news a lot in the last year and a half is around raw milk and whether we think farmers should or shouldn't be allowed to sell raw milk, so unpasteurised. We're one of only two countries in the world where you can't sell raw milk. Um, There's, yeah, everywhere else you can. It's regulated for safety. And we think that prohibition leads to adverse public health outcomes. And we'd like to see raw milk legal and regulated and, you know, clean, safe systems for selling it that would allow those farmers to make the full dollar off their milk as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other issues around farm gate shops in Victoria in particular, our meat regulator has had some very... Um, unfortunate views about their authority as well and so a farm like ours if we didn't have a licensed butcher shop and we wanted to bring our meat in its packages back and sell it from a commercial fridge and have a registration with our local council um, you can't you have to become you have to get a retail butcher shop license or a further processing license just to be able to store it in a fridge and sell it from the farm What if it's been butchered somewhere else in a licensed facility and just brought back in a meat transport vehicle and then you could be like a supermarket. They're not regulated by the meat regulator. It's a complicated system I won't go into, but they're not. They're regulated by councils. Um, you should be able to do that at a farm gate shop. I mean, they're destroying, again, farmers' capacity to make so a livelihood. So you can't sell meat that you've raised. It's been butchered off-site, and you can't sell it when it comes back to you. Correct. You cannot do that unless you get a retail butcher shop license. And how hard is that to get? Um it's not an easy thing to get. It's it's not the same as having a fridge in the back shed, uh, and it's not cheap either. You know, you're talking, in fact, by the time you do the application fee and the registration fee, you're talking about $800, I think it is now. Oh, goodness me. And yeah. what about um, the actual process of killing the animals? Yeah, so there are mobile butchers who will come to a farm and kill an animal and cut and butcher them for the owners of the farm, but you can't sell any of that meat off the property. So... Um, you could so also okay. That's only for your own consumption, right? So mobile butchers only work if you eat the meat yourself. That's right. On it, can, it can't even leave the property technically. Mm-hmm. Now that's rarely enforced, like amongst families. So a family might share the, the annual kill, mm. but according to the Meat Industry Act, that's illegal. And technically, you're not meant to let any of that meat leave your property. So cooking a casserole from your own 
cow and taking it across the road to a friend who's got a newborn child and really needs the help is illegal. <laughs> Actually, once you've cooked it, I'm not sure now. Oh, okay. Ah, uh, right. And, yeah. But, but presumably, possibly. like that transport process, I mean, you, you've, a truck full of chickens goes past and it smells like pure fear. Like that, and I think that'd be true for most animals, that that is an incredibly stressful process. Yeah, I don't think animals like to be transported in a trailer at all. Yeah. And I think that would be great if we could do on-farm kills so that the animals really are just dropped in the paddocks and don't know it's going to happen. That's mm. the ideal situation. Yeah. But the industrialization of the food system kind of um, ended yeah. that era for us. Yeah. There, I was, so there's that river cut, the Australian version of river cottage, the fellow who gets a guy out on the farm who does, does the dispatch of the pig and then he, um, he takes that stuff to market and sells sausages and stuff like that. I, I think we should stop talking about that, Bushy, if that's the case. <laughs> um, Sorry, but, Paul. Um, Paul's actually just become a committee member for the Australian Food Sovereignty awesome. Alliance, and he's fighting hard alongside us now using yep. what he can, you know, to mm-hmm. um, help people understand why that's important. Yeah. So that's allegedly what I was just saying then is allegedly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's true, though. No, no not true at all. No. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance and what your campaigns and um, what what you what you do yeah so we i mean as you, food sovereignty for people who aren't familiar with the term it it sort of encompasses food security which more people are familiar with which is everybody's right to food but we go a little bit further and say it's a right to nourishing and culturally culturally appropriate food as well not just any food um and then the second part is about promoting people's uh right to collectively determine our own food and agriculture systems so we think that we've been losing a lot of those rights both to corporate greed in the case of the dairy crisis recently where other people are setting prices and they're not actually enough to make a living from farming and then the other end where regulations are taking away our right to produce and sell food to our local communities or even exchange it for free Um, so we have a campaign at the moment raising money for a legal defense fund so that we can change some of these laws we want to lobby for reform and protect farmers who are in trouble and and we're actually starting to host lunches across the country called you can't buy what i eat Mm-hmm. And the idea is that everybody has their food that they make themselves, you know, all of this sort of the salamis and the raw milk that they get from their own cows and the cheeses and the kombuchas and the home brews. And they mm-hmm. get together and they have a really big potluck and they social media the crap out of it. Mm-hmm. And they just show that this is what food tradition should look like. And this yeah. is what we should all be allowed to do. And it shouldn't be a, a shameful kind of activity in the closet. Mm-hmm. We should be maintaining old skills and eating delicious local food. Mm-hmm. And that's actually legal because you're eating it on site? Everything we're planning to do is actually legal, but Mm -hmm. just barely. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. It's the sort of thing that makes regulators quite uncomfortable. It's one of the best spices. Yes. So I can just imagine all these prime safe guys standing at the fence with binoculars going... (laughs) Is that is that an internal fence or a boundary fence they're leaning on? <laughs> yeah. Don't uh, yeah. What's the, what's the threshold there? Like if a guy's eating some food and he leans over the fence to pick a bit of grass out and he leaves the boundary. I guess they could grab him. Yeah. <laughs> grab him back. <laughs> no. yeah. Just as the bullet flies past. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting a bit. They actually said to us that day they destroyed our salamis that um, if we didn't comply and and give give up our salamis that they would leave the property and go and get the local police and come back. 
and the police would come onto the property and destroy all the salamis. And some friends of mine who are cops up in, in Queensland said to me later, are you kidding me? Yeah. Your local copper is going to come up to your driveway and say, we're going to destroy our local guy's livelihood? Yeah, we're all over that. Yeah. They would have said, yeah, we're busy. Come yeah. back later, Prime Safe. You guys can go. We'll destroy all this stuff. Trust <laughs> us, it'll be taken care of. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's the other side to the, the, the local food. I mean, that just seems so bizarre to me that they would even pull that card. I mean, what's the local copper is part of the local community. The last right. thing he wants to do is put his neck out for stuff that, I mean, odds are in the country as well. He's probably got an interesting farm or runs a, you know, that's just bizarre to me. Well, the one they would have brought up is a regular customer of ours, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. That's great. <laughs> well, um, there's a, the, you have an educational outlet on the property and um, towards the end of the show we'll... Um, I'll get you to sort of let us know what's coming up in terms of workshops and things like that. But, you know, you've, you've got woofers and interns and, and volunteers and all sorts of training procedures. How's that all going as, as part of the farmer's model overall? Yeah, it's, again, it started as a um, sort of outreach to help people come onto the farm and learn more about why free-range farming matters, why seeing pigs on a paddock will change your relationship to industrial bacon forever. Mm. Um, and it's turned into... I guess that on steroids, we're, we're able to teach people so many skills now because we've learned so many skills in the five years we've been there ourselves. Yeah. Um, the interns are a beautiful part of the system. Well, not allowed to call them interns, so that's illegal too. The volunteers <laughs> on the farm um, Help are, um, well, we have, we have four part-time staff. And so yeah. the volunteers really are volunteers. They come to learn our whole system for three months. Mm-hmm. We teach them everything from the farming to the butchering, the sales model, the workshops, running events. Um, it's great for them. I teach them accounting, <laughs> like sort of Whoa. stuff so and and they become you know lifelong friends and i still snapchat my intern from denmark sort of every day to show her what's happening on the farm so there's people from all over the world it's not just australian it's both yeah it's international it? and um australian and most of them want to be either butchers or farmers or some combination of the two mm. um the next one coming to us is from the uk meg girl friday yep. and she's been doing swaps all over the world trying to learn more about regenerative agriculture and we're really excited that she's coming soon awesome she's fleeing yeah. the brexit yeah. Yeah. Well, you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse and we've been toy with Tammy Jonah, uh, Jonah from Jonah Farm. Uh, thanks for coming in, Tammy. Pleasure. It's been great. Thanks. Awesome. Katie, bless. And bless you. Indeed. <laughs> My son. Indeed. Hey, Adam, what is uh, going on next week? Next week we are talking to permaculture brainiac researcher, agroecologist, Rafter Ferguson, all the way from Portugal. And I also have to mention, because we haven't mentioned it yet on air, that we have got a podcast now. Yes. And you can find it on our show page on the tri- on Triple R. And we have to do a big thank to Mr. Simon Hughes, who donated 600 bucks to Triple R to get us off our butts. Thanks, Simon. Thank, thank you, you Simon. Mate. It was an incredibly generous offer, and uh, he was an incredibly patient listener. We'll see you next Tuesday, but until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.